Hello and welcome to this third webinar in our Science in Life series about the novel coronavirus and COVID-19. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. And today we are stepping back to take a hard look at the mistakes and missteps having been made in addressing this pandemic and what we have learned that might help us better manage this and the next pandemic. I'm maintaining sufficient physical distance from my guests today by bringing everyone together through the now dreaded format of Zoom, but it enables me to gather a fantastic panel of experts and thought leaders who will guide us gently through this topic. Uh, finally, a quick thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. Okay, I think this is a good time to introduce our guests. Um, actually, I'm going to give them the opportunity to introduce themselves. Um, so I think we'll start with Dr. Caitlin Rivers from Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, uh, just up the road from us in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, Caitlin, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks. My name is Caitlin Rivers. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. I special, specialize in epidemics, pandemics, and deliberately occurring events. And I'm a faculty member at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Uh, next on my monitor is Dr. Ashish Jha from Brown University School of Public Health in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, Ashish. Yes, great. Thanks for having me on. My name is Ashish Jha and I'm a physician uh, and a professor of health policy and the dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University and have spent uh, the last five years or so thinking about pandemics, pandemic preparedness, and how do we get the world ready uh, for the big one, which we knew was coming, which this one may be. So. I look forward to our conversation today. Great. Thanks so much, Ashish. Uh, and finally, we have Dr. Deborah Furholden from the Flint Center for Health Equity Solutions. Welcome, Deborah. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Deborah Furholden. I am the Associate Dean for Public Health Integration at Michigan State University, and I am a health equity and health disparities researcher. And I'm an epidemiologist as well by training. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so why don't we uh, jump right in? And I'd like to start with a question that we ask in the description of this event, and that is, how can a virus that we understand essentially at the molecular level still evade public health measures and medicines? What is it about SARS-CoV-2 that makes it such a successful virus? Um, Dr. Rivers, why don't we uh, start with you? Yeah, I think a couple things. The first is that we don't have any vi vaccines, and we have only a few therapeutics in our arsenal. And that means that the things we need to do in order to keep the virus from spreading are really up to us. And it's difficult and it's challenging to comply with social distancing and mask wearing and all of the things we need to do to slow down this virus. It's hard to get everyone to do that at the same time for months and months. And so, I, and at the same time, the virus doesn't get tired like we do. So I, I think that's one of the major challenges. And I think um, from the biological level, I think the preponderance of presymptomatic and asymptomatic transmission makes this virus really difficult to control. Uh, SARS-1, the closely related virus to the coronavirus that's now circulating, caused a pandemic in 2003. People were most infectious late in the course of illness after they had already developed symptoms. And so being able to use symptoms to identify people who are sick and take them out of circulation was a big factor that makes made that virus controllable that we don't have the advantage of here. Mm -hmm. Dr. Jha, why don't I, I throw it over to you. Uh, so um, uh, Caitlin mentioned uh, SARS-1 uh, that's been around. We also have other coronaviruses that have been in circulation in the past. So what, what's different about this one? 
Yeah, so I'm going to build on Caitlin's points, adding a few things. And, and one of them was something that she referred to already, but let me expand on it. There, I can't really think of very many viruses that have the breadth of clinical manifestations that this does, that for probably 15, 20% of people, it's so incredibly mild that they may not even be aware they had it. And for uh, probably 10 to 15% of people, it's severe enough to land them in the hospital and then somewhere around 1% of people can actually kill them. Uh, so it's an incredible breath. And what that has meant is that it has given rise to uh, a ton of misinformation and misunderstanding about the virus. So even though we know that there is this breath, it, it, it's easy enough to argue uh, that, hey, we know so many people who had the virus and did fine. And that can become the platform uh, for arguing against the public health measures that we know uh, are critical to controlling this virus. So I think that breadth of clinical manifestations really has been uh, both, it's one of its biggest strengths as a virus, its ability to spread, and one of the real weaknesses among kind of humans in terms of our ability to respond. If everybody who got the virus got super sick, we would be able to kind of muster a response, a public health response that I think would be far more effective. Uh, but that's not true. And, and that and that I think has been a really important part of uh, what's made it so difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we're going to come back to a couple of the points that you and Caitlin made in, in later questions that I have for you. But um, I wanted to come to Dr. Verholden. And, um, so this this is the question. We're, we're recording this webinar on uh, September 24th. Um, at this time, cases appear to be increasing in Europe. Um, this seems to be their second wave in many countries. Um, we've seen week-on-week increases in a vast number of, of states in America, um, many of whom have not even come out of their first wave yet. And deaths in the U.S. just topped 200,000, and we're, we're creeping up worldwide on the 1 million mark. Um, so, <laughs> Dr. Verholden, is there any good news out there? I think there's some good news. and so. Um, we we know that it, you know this question around lockdown is a tough one because we've all worn thin and and as Dr. Rivers said the virus has not it persists um, but we do know that decreasing the likelihood that an infected person comes in contact with an uninfected person is right now our best strategy for slowing the spread of the virus so it doesn't matter if it includes things like increasing the protections for people including things like uh, ppe and other kinds of protections for frontline workers getting rid of the systemic and structural barriers for testing etc you know this is sort of we are where we are right and we know we need to decrease large gatherings and all of those kinds of things. That's going to be our best approach until we have better therapeutics and a vaccine that's ready for widespread distribution. One of the, the, the sort of lights in the, in the midst of this is that much of what we've done around public health protection, we're seeing benefits as it relates to other infectious diseases like the flu. So many countries in the Southern Hemisphere have a flu season that predates, that precedes the flu season um, in the US. And what we've seen are record low numbers of flu cases in those areas. Why? Because we've got increased uptake of vaccination and all of the protections that we've put in place. Very simple things like good hand hygiene and working on keeping your immune system high. Those things and those practices, if we could actually sustain those types of things, we would see a reduction in a lot of other infectious diseases as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Caitlin, Dashish, any, any good news that you're seeing? 
Uh, sure, as a parent, I am grateful that children seem to be at low risk of severe illness. There is a lot we still don't know. We know that a small fraction of children experience uh, inflammatory condition that can be quite dangerous. We don't know about long-term consequences, but, but we can say with some certainty that children generally are at low risk of severe illness. And I think that is a bright spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll add, I, I, so absolutely. And the, and the kid thing has been, it's been hugely helpful. And, and, and also some evidence that especially younger kids spread the virus less. Uh, again, I, I would not say that evidence is uh, bulletproof, but it, but it certainly seems that way, and and that makes it easier uh, to get younger kids back to school. Um, of course, the other part that I think has been a, a huge ray of sunshine is the biomedical response, um, the scientific community, the way they have come together, um, the fact that we do have, I would argue, two therapeutics, uh, dexamethasone and remdesivir, uh, that seem like they help. And then the the progress on vaccines, and we can talk more about this, is mind blowing. Just mm-hmm. the speed with which the science has come together uh, to put together vaccine candidates, to start running them through clinical trials, uh, you know, it's so. There's a lot to lot to like here in what is otherwise a pretty dreary situation. Um, the scientific community's response has certainly been pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. If I could just add some specificity to that, I had a, a, a really fabulous conversation with Dr. Francis Collins, who's the director of the National Institutes of Health in the U.S., and he said that the average phase one clinical trial for a vaccine is about 18 months. Operation Warp Speed got through phase one for one round of testing in 53 days. Wow. So I do think what we're seeing is a global coming together of our world's best and brightest to innovate with velocity. And we now know that we can do that. Mm-hmm. And, and if I could add, if you don't mind, one more <laughs> bit, bit of flavor to that. Uh, one of the things that uh, a lot of people, I think, ask me all the time is, you know, what do you think about the, the, the European vaccine versus the American vaccine versus a Chinese vaccine? And one of the points that uh, Dr. Verholden just made, which is, is that there is no American vaccine, there is no Chinese vaccine, that the scientific community is deeply global and we're all learning from each other. And so it may be that there's a company based in the United States or Europe or or China, but the intellectual knowledge that goes underneath that is all through shared work. Science is incredibly collaborative and it is incredibly global. Mm -hmm. However, our politicians may like to see and split us uh, the scientific community, I think, has held strong on that global uh, view and approach. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think I think those are great points. And I've, I've been reflecting on Dr. Sanders' original um, question, too, that we are seeing a resurgence in a lot of places that had a relatively quiet summer. And that's that's not a, a development that we like to see. But on the bright side, even the places that are now experiencing a resurgence did have several months of relative quiet. And that means that they had a little break and were able to return to some some version of normal life. So I think that is a little bit of a bright spot. And I think too that their experiences show that this virus can be controlled and that we can use non-pharmaceutical interventions, things like distancing and mask wearing to regain control. And so although what's happening now is sort of not the ideal state, I think there are some important lessons for how we can return to something like normalcy. Mm -hmm. Right, no, that's great. And if I could editorialize for a second, I, I think this, this demonstrates what we are capable of doing, uh, especially with Operation Warp Speed, that this can be done very quickly. Um, and as I always say, go science. Yeah. Um, 
So, uh, um, uh, Caitlin, I'm, I'm going to just uh, riff on something that you said. Um, so we're, we're in a situation where it is possible that there's going to be another lockdown, um, possibly across the U.S. or at least in certain states and possibly in many countries in Europe. Um, so lockdowns clearly work, but are they warranted? And is there something less austere that we could do to prevent a second wave? I think the first question is, what is what would it look like for a lockdown to be warranted? And I think the two criteria that I would propose as metrics are that the healthcare systems are under threat of becoming underwhelmed and not tomorrow, but you have to look a few weeks down the road to, to um, just because it takes time for people to get sick and then progress through the course of illness to the point that they need hospitalization. So are healthcare systems under stress? Or are, is there so much transmission happening in the community that a lockdown is really the only way that you can regain control and set things on a better course? And so that's those are the circumstances that I would want, that I would expect to see before a community thinks about returning to lockdown. Mm-hmm. Now, if we were to return to those community mitigation stay-at-home measures, I don't think it needs to look like it did in the spring. We've learned a lot about how this virus spreads, and I think we can use that to our advantage to be more precise in our closures. I don't think we will return to closing outdoor areas or even things like retail businesses with some modifications. But I think it's very possible that places that are experiencing a resurgence will need to close bars, maybe indoor restaurants, maybe schools if we determine that schools are drivers of transmission. So I think there is potential for those high risk settings to be um, stepped back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm gonna, let me add by just uh, saying a couple of things. I mean, the big differences that we have between now and let's say March, April, where we had to do those big lockdowns, we have a lot better testing. And so we have a much clearer sense of where transmission is happening. Part of the reason we had essentially, I think a national lockdown um, is that uh, we had very little testing. So we had little sense of like where the outbreaks were substantial. That's gonna be very different. We can be far more targeted. And then as Caitlin said, uh, I So I personally don't see us having to lock down. I'm not sure exactly what that means. I see us having to, it's, it's now instead of like a, you're open or you're closed, it's much more of a dimmer switch. And sometimes you might just find that you're too open and your case transmissions are too high. And then you just have to kind of lower the dimmer switch, maybe close bars. I actually believe that bars probably just should not be open until we have widespread vaccination. But uh, I'm not sure bar owners of America love me for saying that, <laughs> but there are some things that you just have to kind of pull back on uh, until you can get the cases under better control. And then uh, and so it's going to be a much more of a dimmer than it is going to be a on or off. But here's, I think, a critical point that, that we haven't touched on yet, which is that the social and political determinants of health and how we've done things have been major. I live in the state of Michigan. Wearing a mask has basically become a political statement. It's a statement of freedom and choice, et cetera. And so some of these social and political determinants, I feel like, have overpowered the voice of good science and good medicine and good public health. And so I do think it's important as we consider that this is not, this health crisis in large part has been fueled by social and political factors. We have to think about how those things integrate. And then what is the role of the scientific, the medical and the public health community in chiming in so that our voice isn't drowned out by these other factors that we know are unrelated to health, but are potentially the biggest drivers of outcomes that we see at the state, 
and community and even national or international level. Mm -hmm. That's uh, Deborah, that's a, a great point. And, and it actually brings me nicely to my next question, which is um, about the disproportionate impact on certain populations, um, particularly uh, people of color, Native Americans in the U.S., um, and it, it ties in, as you were saying, with the, the social and racial just, injustice movement uh, in this country. Um, so can you talk to that about some of the, the mistakes that we've made um, and where this is going and what we need to do uh, in, the, in the next six months to a year to correct these, these issues? Sure. I think a, a, a critical thing is we, we oftentimes mount solutions that don't match the level of the problem. So there's nothing about this virus that should biologically predispose one race versus another race or put them in excess harm's way. And the conversation when the virus first started to explain the racial disparities that we saw in the US were mostly focused on individual determinants of health. We heard a lot about people who had pre-existing health conditions and that was what was driving the big disparities that we saw. We now have good science and data, in fact, to tell us that that was the factor, but it only explained about 15% of the disparity, the racial disparity that we saw. It was much more likely that racial ethnic minorities, uh, poor communities, socially vulnerable communities were at excess exposure risk because they are in these high demand, high, um, you know, sort of exposure jobs, but they have less control and authority over those jobs. So they're more likely to be food service workers, food delivery workers, you know, driving for um, the ride share services, et cetera. And then there were barriers for them getting the innovation that we knew would support people being identified early around testing, right? So initially when we rolled out testing, you had to have a prescription from a primary care mm -hmm. physician. Well, we know there are big disparities in who has health insurance and who goes to see the doctor. So if you came into the pandemic without a primary care physician, you were marginalized in the testing protocols. And then we started to sort of mount these interventions. Well, we need more testing. So we came up with drive-through testing. But guess what? If you didn't have a car and you took the bus to get there or you walked, you mm -hmm. couldn't walk through the testing site. So there are all of these other systematic and structural factors that were related to why we saw these tremendous disparities. And I mm -hmm. think what we've done in Michigan is we started to mount solutions that then matched the level of the problem. At the outset of the pandemic, African-Americans are 14% of the population in Michigan, but we were 41% of the deaths. Wow dealing with those social, structural, and systemic factors. Now looking at our two-week moving averages, we are still 14% of the population, but we are only 9% of the cases and 12% of the deaths. Mm -hmm. We have eliminated the racial disparity in COVID cases and deaths by mounting solutions that actually match the level of the problem. Building on Dr. Furholden's great comments too, we see over and over again in public health problems, everything from food insecurity to HIV to heart disease, that those conditions disproportionately impact people of color. And that's not a biological attribute, that's a reflection of, of social determinants of health and the systemic failures to create healthy conditions for everyone. And I think there are some specialties within public health that really make understanding and tackling those disparities central to their practice. 
I think that's been less true of pandemic preparedness. And I say that as someone who works in pandemic preparedness, but I hope that we never make that mistake again and that we really um, incorporate this understanding that has been evident to other public health practitioners. But I think we really need to bring that into public, to, excuse me, to pandemic preparedness. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Thank you all. Um, so um, Ashish, let me come to you with the next question, uh, just shifting gears a little bit. Uh, it seems that there is a lot of coronavirus fatigue or, or quarantine fatigue, um, completely separate from Zoom fatigue, which we, we know we all have a, a problem with. Um, uh, and this is leading people to relax, uh, take more chances. You know, apparently in Israel now going through a second wave and people are just ignoring mask wearing protocols and social distancing. Um, are you seeing this sort of globally? And, if, you know, and what can we do to mitigate this, this issue? Yeah. Uh, so this is a problem. This is a huge problem. And, and, and Dr. Rivers actually got us started by reminding us that humans get tired, but the virus doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, here we are. But there are a couple of ways in which I think we as humans have contributed to this problem. Uh, so one is that we have not done a very good job of risk communication and have often talked about social distancing as do you want to be locked down or not? Nobody wants to be locked down. When we were actually locked down, let's be honest, it was pretty miserable. And we have learned a lot about the virus. And what that has meant is that we've got to communicate more effectively about what's safe to do and what's not, and, and to under, get people to understand risk. So for instance, throughout much of the summer, we saw photos of, of beaches and people talked about, oh my God, this is gonna spread the virus. There's no evidence that beaches spread the virus. Actually, I encourage people to go to beaches and go to parks and be outside. And even in areas with substantial transmission, the idea was that you should and need to be able to live your life. Uh, the question is, can you do things that are relatively safe? Um, on mask wearing, this has become deeply politicized as Dr. Forholden started off with in Michigan, but in other states, uh, this is very unfortunate. It need not be. and. Uh, you know, and, and my take has been that uh, masks should not be a, a symbol of freedom, that in fact, freedom is about being able to get your kids back to school. And if masks help enable that, then that is a pro-freedom move. But that's where we've had real political failures of, of political leaders. So it's been a combination of, I think, us in the public health community not doing a good enough job communicating uh, about what are risky things and less risky things. And I think the politicization, all of that has really, uh, I think, contributed uh, to the fatigue that people feel. Uh, every time we bring up virus control, people just say, well, I don't want to be locked down anymore. And I think we need to explain that this is not about locking down. This is really about uh, minimizing the things that we know are the highest risk. Mm -hmm. Great. So, um, Ashish, you, you, you mentioned a phrase, you said relatively safe. Um, and I, I, I wanted to bring that up because uh, I think people are seeking this balance between sort of a full quarantine, not seeing anybody and going out, like we were saying, and drinking in bars and, you know, maybe doing karaoke or something like that. Um, and balancing that with, with economic needs as well um, of individuals as well as of states and countries. So uh, is that balance shifting? Do you see that moving around um, sort of day to day? Is it shifting one direction or the other? Well, let me start with this and, and I'll, I'll be curious what my co-panelists think about this, but but most of the evidence as I see it, both in the US, but certainly in other countries, is that if you do a better job controlling the virus, you actually allow for more economic activity and it would make sense. Um, if the, the so to start with, I mean, there's one part of this, which is it is a balancing act in terms of 
if we wanted to get to zero cases in the United States, what we would have to do would be so enormously costly from a social point of view that I would not recommend it. I don't think it's worth it. It's not the goal. The goal is if you can keep the virus level relatively modest in most communities, uh, what you can do is you can enable people to get out. You can get people to get back to some semblance of work. We can get a lot of kids back in. So I actually think a modest level of, of virus control enables more economic activity because it builds enough confidence for people. Uh, I mean, for instance, I have not gotten on an airplane in the last six and a half months. Uh, I used to fly you know, a couple hundred thousand miles a year. Uh, so why? Because I am not yet confident enough to get on an airplane. Um, but if we had better virus control in the United States, I might. So I, I have generally seen these two things going together, uh, but understanding that when you have economic activity, you're going to have to live with a little bit of virus in the community. Uh, and, and that's probably okay. So here's the problem that I've seen with this. And I, by and large, agree with what you're saying. The problem is we don't have the kind of community level epidemiologic surveillance in place. And we also haven't sort of produced good standards that that communities could apply if as they move through the phases of reopening, what is the pivot point? Right. And different communities are, you know, they operate differently. You know, where I am, masking up has become very politicized. And so we have lower compliance with people masking up in public spaces in communities where people are more apt to to mask up and honoring those protocols perhaps you you can eff effectively uh, re-engage. But we need good epidemiologic surveillance and we need it at a level that's meaningful. Because oftentimes the laws, there are some national laws, then there's some state laws, and then there are some laws that are happening within communities. We need to be able to link those things and understand how those various policies, how well they're being implemented and enforced are then related to surges and increases in cases and decide what's the pivot point when we say it's not working, we've got to dial it back. And I think we need good data for that. And in the absence of it, the lack of data will continue to fuel this debate. Mm -hmm. uh, Caitlin, any thoughts from you? I, I agree actually with both of my co-panelists. I think that people want to do what, what they need to do to keep themselves and their families safe. And so I think the quickest return to economic recovery looks like regaining control of the virus. Just because it's open doesn't mean that, we, that people will come because if they don't feel safe, they won't return to those activities in the community. But I absolutely agree also with Dr. Verholden that right now we don't really have the, the data and the analyses to guide decisions about how and when to reopen and what activities to reopen to. I think we collect a lot of data in the course of case investigations and contact tracing. That could tell us a lot about where the high risk settings and activities are and where people are getting infected and we have not done an effective job at really incorporating that into our response where are people getting infected at this point we have some general ideas but but we can't say with the sort of precision that i would like to see and i think being able to bring that data to bear would would allow us to meet the goals of both reopening safely while also creating the conditions for that to be possible more effectively Mm -hmm. Yeah, so an interesting stat that I just heard is that 50% of um, COVID-19 cases diagnosed within the last two weeks had been to a restaurant in the last two weeks. Hmm. And so, and, and as an epidemiologist, I started to think, well, is that a causal relationship 
or is that a proxy for something else? Are people right. who are going to restaurants also just more likely to be engaging? Are they less likely to wear masks? It raised a lot of questions for me. So I agree with Dr. Rivers, better unpacking that and being able to do that at a local level because we don't wanna be alarmist, right? We also have to be very conscious of the real mental, social, emotional toll that this pandemic has taken on people, the real isolation that people face, you know, trying to honor the protocols and be safe and do their part to help slow the spread. So I think the better data that we get, the more resolute that data is, and then the more informed we can be about what are those key sort of levers to pull and points at which we say, okay, we can start to move toward reopening or things have gotten out of control again and we sort of need to dial it back. Mm -hmm. Going back to one of our earlier questions on compliance too, I think it would be so powerful if we could say to people, we have to close indoor dining because 50% of recent infections, you know, we were able definitively, or, or we think um, to restaurants, I think that would give people a lot more confidence and a lot more justification. Like, yeah, that actually makes sense. I worry right now it feels a little whimsical because we don't have the kinds of, of data and stats. And I think that doesn't sit right with, with some people which contributes to the politicization. Mm -hmm. And it, it also seems that there's a lot of confusion because there are different messages coming from different places and you know I, I think this is the frustration of a lot of the public um, with science in general is that there are mixed messages and they don't know who to trust um, and I, I even find that myself you know the CDC says one thing one day and another thing the next um, so so the, the, the question that I have from this and talking about compliance and coming back to, to something that Deborah said is I, I get the sense that people are very tired of being afraid all the time and I think fear only works for a short period of time to get compliance. So how do we find a more positive way to get compliance? Um, and Ashish, you mentioned, you know, better communication. Are there ways that we can better communicate the, the, the stats that we have, you know, in a way that tells people we're not 100% certain about these stats, but we have good confidence in them? Let me let me start by saying a couple of things. I mean, I do think acknowledging uncertainty is really important. And I I worry that sometimes we in the public health community uh, think that people need certainty. I don't know that they do. Uh, and I think we need to explain to people why our thinking has evolved. So uh, obviously, I wasn't recommending at the end of February that everybody wear masks. Uh, and there's a set of reasons why I was not. And those reasons have changed because the science has changed. Mm -hmm. And so explaining to people that uh, science evolves and that there is uncertainty and, uh, and yet it isn't like we know nothing. And what's interesting to me is right now, I bet if you took 100 people who were public health experts of one form or another who are deeply engaged in this pandemic, my sense is we'd agree on about 95% of it. Um, we would generally agree that mask wearing is real, is useful. We would generally agree that indoors are much riskier than outdoors, mm -hmm. right? We would generally agree that some amount of social distancing is helpful, even wearing a mask. I'm not sure you should be giving long hugs to somebody you haven't spent a lot of time with who's not part of your bubble. We would generally agree that more testing uh, helps us identify people who you can isolate. And then there's a bunch of subtlety and nuance where people might disagree. I think leading with what we do know explaining this uncertainty and then explaining where there is genuine disagreement 
uh, I think most people can handle it. And I think we should do a better job uh, of, uh, of communicating those things. I think too that the way we have structured public communications in this pandemic in the US specifically is very unusual. Normally the CDC would be having regular press conferences, particularly in event of this magnitude, maybe daily press conferences. And then all of us kind of experts that spend time talking to the media and to the public would be able to say, well, we heard from CDC yesterday that, and then be able to amplify that those messages. But because we haven't had an opportunity to really receive that, um, the, those messages in the public communications from CDC, everyone is sort of coming up with their own messages and their own justifications. And as experts, you know, there is latitude for that. I don't think it's the worst thing, but it does create a little bit of a cacophony that I think would be, uh, would look a lot mm -hmm. different if we did hear more from a national body. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah, my experience has been that we've also, I've seen a, a real push for trusted, credible messengers at a smaller level and for affinity groups. There's tremendous, tremendous skepticism in the African-American community around um, a vaccine. Um, there was a, a myth floating around when it first started that somehow there was some immunity in the African-American community, which we learned very early on was that not only the case, but, but quite the contrary, we got really hit hard. And so I really do feel like, and it's been really, for me, um, amazing to watch like all soldiers on the field. You know, I, 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 I was an, I'm an epidemiologist. I was focused on behavioral health equity uh, before this. And most of my work has been around substance abuse and violence and behavioral health and mental health. But we're dealing with multiple pandemics here. We've got this, this virus, we've got substantial racial unrest, and we've now sort of put systemic racism out at the forefront. And so in many of the communities that I interact with, they won't, don't trust what they hear from the CDC. So to go back to Caitlin's point, which I think is a great one, I can be a credible messenger and carry forward messages that are coming from the CDC and will have a lot more credibility in the African-American community than will the CDC director. Mm -hmm. But I do think a, a sort of lack of that national movement from some of these agencies that we've really come to count on and trust as scientists in a, in a public health community does put us in, a, in, a, in an awkward position. Um, but, but I do see the work is being done and it has been amazing to watch so many scientists. None of us are trained in, you know, how to write an op-ed or how to do press releases or, you know, we've all become masters of webinars and Zooms and, you know, some of these other things. So I think formats like this one and many other types of, of um, strategies that we've employed to really get trusted, credible messages out to people from trusted and credible messengers it is something that we're going to have to continue to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and can I add one bit to this, which is, so what, what, what uh, Caitlin laid out of under a, an event of this magnitude, you absolutely need to have daily CDC hearings, uh, briefings. The problem is actually, and, and that's critical, but the problem is one step worse than that, which is the CDC and the FDA, which have been shorthands for gold standard scientific evidence, right? And on the hospital wards, if we're talking about some sort of infection issue, and if I said, well, the CDC recommends, that's my way of saying the best scientific evidence synthesized by really awesome people says. And then you can disagree on the margins the way scholars might. Mm -hmm. um, that 
has been for the first time in my career breached, um, where CDC has been saying things that you know the great scientists of the CDC are not possibly uh, behind. And that politicization has meant that I personally, and I'm sure uh, others have felt this, for the first time in my life, find myself standing up and saying the CDC is wrong. Mm. And that feels deeply awkward. And then I'm like, so we're very unmoored in some ways, and we're really struggling with an environment right. uh, where it's not even about amplifying the, the the scientific voice of the CDC. We're in fact having to find ourselves kind of contradicting that. That, and I don't think we want to be here in the middle of a pandemic. Right, and and then who do we trust in that case? Uh, Caitlin, did you want to add anything? I agree. I think that's that's a great point, and I do agree that there have been multiple points during this pandemic where I have disagreed with CDC guidance and it's not been clear to me whether um, it's a technical matter or whether it, it's a matter of political influence on, on the technical guidance. And I think it, it makes it does make it difficult to, to sort through and communicate kind of the highs and lows of looking to CDC. All of the same great experts who were at CDC two years ago are, are still there and still kind of prepared to do their best work. But I think the gap between the work that they're doing and what becomes available to the public has become muddied. And I think that's that's not been a good development for us at all. Right. So um, I'm going to shift gears again um, with a, a more forward looking question. So apart from or, or in parallel with the challenge of getting the current outbreak under control, what other challenges are ahead of us, uh, not just in the U.S., but globally? Um, I'm thinking, you know, particularly of vaccine development, distribution, but also of the next pandemic. Um, so, uh, Ashish, why don't we start with you? Yeah, so let's just start with the challenges on this one, because they are large enough that I'm happy to come back to thinking about the <laughs> preventing the next pandemic. Um, but and, and the things that we do, if we do them well, will serve us well in the future. Uh, but the, again, we've talked about the incredible development of vaccines so far. Um, we need to probably make, you know, between five and 10 billion doses of vaccines, depending on whether it's a single or a two dose vaccine to get much of the world uh, vaccinated. Uh, just producing that much vaccine uh, is an enormous, enormous challenge. We don't happen to have thousands of factories sitting idle. We don't happen to have 10 billion vials uh, ready to go. So there is a massive supply chain problem. And then, and, and arguably just as big and even maybe bigger, is the logistics of getting those vaccines into people's arms. Uh, and that's a combination of communication. It's a combination of, of uh, supply chain, certainly. It's a combination of all of the logistics. It's taken us many, many years to perfect through polio eradication and through other things. So this is gonna be a challenge. It's gonna be a multi-year challenge. And again, I worry a lot about fatigue. I also worry a lot about inequity. Um, if large chunks of the United States and Western Europe are vaccinated and much of the rest of the world is not, uh, I think that's gonna cause serious problems in the kind of global architecture of things. Mm -hmm. And so we have to have a, a strategy. And again, I've been pretty supportive of COVAX, the WHO effort on this, uh, but how that will actually play out, we will. So, so there are a lot of challenges ahead, but on vaccines, I see producing billions of doses and then getting them into people's arms as two enormous challenges that are not gonna be solved in, the, in, in months, but probably it's gonna take years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Deborah, maybe- I agree with that. I think the global, yeah, okay. the global equity problem is a great one that you point to. 
Um, and we've seen that in, in the tremendous global disparities in who gets what and, and, and how well people are able to sort of maximize their opportunities for optimal health. If you look even locally, I always tell people equity has to be baked into everything that we do. Because I do believe as a global society and as a nation, um, inequity is our natural drift. And I don't think it takes very much. We all inherited this and inequities and disparities did not just come about during uh, this, this pandemic. In fact, we saw with the rollout of testing as an example, we thought let's get testing into the communities where they're most at need. And we did that through our federally qualified health centers, which are the, the, the places that are charged with the health of the underserved and the medically underserved and the socially vulnerable. When we went back and looked at the data, what we saw in fact, was that even though it was being distributed through the federally qualified health centers, in fact, who became the biggest beneficiaries were not their typical communities that they serve. It was the people who had better resources, who could get there, who could drive there, um, who had information that the testing was available, et cetera. So we've got to also be very mindful, um, especially in the US, because I think we have a lot more say, and then the US needs to be a global leader in ensuring global equity. There need, the resources have to have equity built in. We should be saying, X number of doses have to go to these countries and to these places and to these citizens within those places. We'll do the work to figure out the how, but it has to be built in to the resources in advance, or I think our natural drift in, in a well-meaning society even will be towards inequity. Couldn't agree more with the comments on equity. And, and I also uh, agree and want to highlight that distribution of the vaccine is going to be a process. I worry it's become part of the political rhetoric, particularly in the US, that once we have a vaccine, it's smooth sailing. But many of the leading candidates have to be frozen, which takes a lot of infrastructure. Um, again, many of the leading candidates require two doses. And so you have to get millions of people through vaccine um, distribution sites, not just once, but twice on a particular schedule. And likely the, the first vaccines to be um, identified and distributed will not be fully protective. It will not be that you get a vaccine and you're good to go. They will likely reduce the probability of infection, reduce the chance of severe illness, a lot like the flu vaccine, but, but it will probably not be completely protective. And so it's, it's gonna be a long haul, even when we are able to identify a, a safe and effective vaccine. And I, I think the other thing that I worry about uh, for long-term challenges is, is following up uh, understanding sequelae and long-term consequences of people who have been infected. This is a brand new virus and we don't know what, what could happen over the long-term from, from people who have recovered. And I think understanding those challenges and also um, developing the solutions and infrastructure to support those people is going to be really important, but also very difficult. Mm -hmm. No, thank you very much, Caitlin. You, you actually brought up two things that I'd really like to talk about before we, uh, we finish this webinar. We have about 15 minutes left. So long-term effects of the virus, um, and I'm thinking particularly in children, uh, is obviously critical, and I think it's something that we really don't understand enough about yet. Um, but is there anything that we've learned, um, and Caitlin, I'll put this question to you first, that we can apply moving forward um, you know, to protect those vulnerable populations? I think the, the first lesson I, I would draw from other viruses is that we know that they can cause long-term consequences. I think we can just put the question of yes or no, will there be long-term consequences out of, out of our minds? Because I think the answer is almost certainly yes. 
the question are is for me are what are the consequences and what fraction of people might expect to experience them and who is at highest risk of experiencing them and then of course how can we protect them there are reports of COVID survivors having long-term consequences already and i think the the syndromes or the symptoms that they're experiencing are really varied and so it's we don't have a case definition yet or a clear understanding of what the different presentations are. So I, th I think those are outstanding challenges. But for me, it's really about setting up the studies and the infrastructure to, to move those questions forward. Mm -hmm. Ashish? Uh, I think, that, yeah, oh, the, the, sorry, go I ahead, just Jimmy. wanted to add something. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I think this notion also of good information is going to be so critical. We had a pediatric death in Michigan. I think it was one of the first in the US. It was a five-year-old girl in Detroit, and it just obliterated this notion that children are not at risk for death from this um, from this virus. And so it, it's just really important that we, and I, lo I love the way um, Ashish described it, that you know the, the science and our knowledge is unfolding, right? And so we don't have full certainty. And so this really is the time for people to um, not leave it up to chance. We don't wanna gain a better understanding of long-term consequences because we've had massive numbers of cases you know we have enough cases we've had deaths we've been doing mortality reviews to even understand what really contributed whether it be individual determinants or social or structural factors that led to those deaths we've been doing um, now qualitative and, and in-depth interviews with what we call near misses people who came very close to death but then survived we've been able to improve therapeutics and many things um, out of that, but we are still learning. And I just don't think the way that we wanna learn is by people being exposed and people being sick and us doing, you know, figuring it out after the fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let me add maybe just a couple of points. So I, I wanna echo something um, that Caitlin said, which is we should assume that there will be some set of long-term consequences for some set of people, because it would be bizarre if it weren't the case, in most viruses, uh, that happens. Uh, so, so I think we should expect that. Um, so that's sort of the first point. The second is we do need large cohort studies uh, to try to tease this apart over time of people who've been infected to, to watch them over time. Uh, we know how to do these studies. And one of the things that when I get asked about long-term consequences is I remind people that there has there is no long term yet for this virus. We've only known about the virus for nine months. Uh, we sequenced its genome uh, just about actually eight months ago, or a little more than eight months ago. Uh, so we're not at a point where we can talk about three, five, ten year effects. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also means that as a as a physician, for me, the big issue here is like the principle of do first do no harm is like we should not be cavalier. We should not take an approach of it'll be fine. It might be fine for some people. Uh, but to begin with that and to lean in on that approach is incredibly harmful. And we would never do that in medicine. And we should not do that in public health. And we should be cautious and thoughtful and try to protect people. Uh, and if it turns out that the long-term consequences are not that great, or maybe they're not for a high proportion of people, wonderful. Like that's what we're going to hope for. But to assume that that's going to happen, I think, has been incredibly dangerous, uh, not until we have clearer data. Mm -hmm. 
so to come back to the, the other thing that, that Caitlin brought up that I, I wanted to talk about is, uh, um, is about vac vaccination and getting the global population vaccinated. Um, how do we convince people that this is important? And it, it seems crazy to me that this would be a challenge these days. I think if you were alive 50, 60 years ago, there would be little, um, little argument that vaccines are important. Um, so so that, that's the first question, but added to that is, how do scientists convey that a vaccine will be safe and effective when often vaccines are not 100% safe or 100% effective? Um, so Caitlin, I'll, I'll put the question to you first. Uh, for me, I think it all starts by making sure the process by which a vaccine is approved for, for widespread use is very transparent and very clear and that there is no, um, no room or opportunity for um, suspicion about shenanigans or anything like that. I think that is absolutely critical that we start off on the right foot and build the confidence in people that a vaccine is safe and effective. And uh, to, to one of Ashish's earlier points, I think that people can handle uncertainty if we take the time to explain to them what the challenges are, what the data say, and I think we should just be honest when a vaccine is identified for use, what the highs and lows are. If it's only 50% effective and it will prevent severe illness, but will not completely shield you from protection, we should just say that. And I think that's really how we build trust is being honest and transparent and not not overstating things, not trying to um, make claims that aren't true, but, but really just being truthful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that, especially from the public health and the and the scientific and the medical community, now more than ever, it's just important that we tell the truth as we understand it and know it today and give that caveat to people. Um, because the reality of it is this is a new virus for us. It, we, we've learned a lot and we can glean from other uh, pandemics and other uh, related viruses, but we, we know what we know. And I think it's our job to let people know that because the reality is they don't have to deal with certain diseases anymore because of vaccination. We don't remember a time when you know people were getting sick and dying from measles and, and other things because we've eradicated basically those diseases because of the innovation of vaccines. And so I think we also need to continue to bring that message forward and let people make informed decisions for themselves. So let me let me add only because um, both Caitlin and Deborah did such a good job of sort of laying out, I think, the approach on vaccines that let me add one problem that we have, which is um, I, I think this pandemic has been far more challenging than it needed to have been because of the torrent of misinformation. It's not random misinformation. It's not your Uncle Bob who just happened to share a, you know, a, a Facebook. Um, post that wasn't accurate. It's actually very uh, organized. It's well, it, it, it's really um, done quite well. And, and that misinformation has been, I think, at the heart of our inadequate response in the US, where there are smart people who want to do the right thing, who fundamentally have been, have received so much misinformation that they misunderstand the status of the virus. Guess what? That's going to play out with the vaccine as well. Mm -hmm. So it is not going to just be a simple issue of like, how do we communicate effectively, but it's really how do we counter misinformation and the anti-vax groups, which are already quite active uh, on social media are going to be, I believe, in full force uh, on this vaccine. And so one of the things I've been pleading uh, with political leaders 
is don't make this worse by making this a Trump vaccine or a Biden vaccine. Uh, neither Donald Trump nor Joe Biden have had anything to do with this vaccine. It's a scientific vaccine built by scientists at the NIH, by scientists at these companies, Oxford, other places. Uh, that's what we have to remember. Uh, but to the extent that politicians get involved in talking about this as a, as a personal success, it just further fuels the politicization and makes all of the misinformation so much harder to counter. Mm -hmm. I would add too, going back to our earlier discussion about the ways that communication has unfolded in this pandemic, I've seen in some corners um, that, that a common reaction is to blame people for not complying. And I've used the word compliance in this webinar a few times. I normally try to steer clear of it. But one of the things that I've always appreciated about public health is that we try not to blame individuals for their actions and their choices. We try to look at the factors that kind of feed into those decisions and figure out how we can create the conditions for people to make healthy choices. And so what I don't want to see is for us to shame or speak negatively of people who choose not to be vaccinated, but instead to try to understand what is driving those decisions and see how we can support people in um, in making the right decisions for them and their families. And, and that's one major challenge that I think that the public health community and the leadership community needs to tackle head on is really understanding the drivers of um, vaccine hesitancy in this context. Sure, and, mm -hmm. and to my earlier point, then the solutions that we implement then begin to better match the level of the problem. Cause shaming people or blaming people doesn't change their behavior or their you know ideas about health and vaccinations, et cetera. But I, I agree with Caitlin, if we get those context, better understanding of those contextual factors and figure out how to intervene there, I think we will get a lot a bigger result than we will pointing to individual level determinants. Mm -hmm. Great. So in the, the few minutes that we have left, I just want to address one final topic, and that is that it's clear that the, the world has changed in many fundamental ways, uh, possibly permanently, um, but maybe for the better as well. And I, I wanted to just touch on a few areas and, and feel free to, to add your own. But some of the ones that I, I was thinking of were, were telemedicine, which, um, you know, my understanding is that this has been around for a long time, but was not really used. And there was some resistance from uh, government and from the uh, insurance, medical insurance uh, agencies to telemedicine. Now this is something that has exploded. It's used and maybe something that will remain. Um, the other is uh, improved uh, connections with family and improved relationships. Um, closer ties between nations, uh, between the US and Europe and nations in Asia um, for exchange of information on communicable diseases and tracking of communicable diseases. So I, I'm just going to throw this out there. Any, any thoughts? Um, Deborah, why don't we start with you? I think one of the cool things that we figured out during this time period is there's a lot that we can accomplish uh, using means that are different than what we were using before. And I often hear it said that, well, telemedicine will further marginalize some people because they'll have technology barriers or access barriers. And what we're actually seeing is quite the opposite. We're seeing quite the opposite in this notion that if you're elderly or poor or underserved, you don't have any access. It's just simply not true. And it's not true that we don't have some barriers, but it has opened up a world of access for so many people that could have been opened up before. So I think we've 
we've now gotten a, a better sense of we can keep all the trains moving. We can better address people's health needs and health concerns using methods that we previously had at our disposal, but were just underutilizing. It does, in a way, become a great equalizer, some of the lessons that we've learned. And I think telemedicine is an outstanding example. I personally, my daughter got very, very ill in late March and all primary care was shut down. Uh, she hadn't has not been vaccinated at all during um, the COVID-19 pandemic. And we were able to, well, she hadn't been. We were able to do a telehealth appointment, get her diagnosed, pick up a lab cup and a contactless visit, get her lab work done. She was able to be diagnosed and treated in about a five day window. Hmm in the midst of the pandemic. I thought, man, why haven't we been doing this all along? So I really do hope that the innovation that we've learned, our capacity to rapidly innovate, to build and bring together this global community of scholars and scientists and public health professionals, I hope that we continue that because it has tremendous potential to be the game changer for how we address global health beyond this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ashish, uh, I'll come to you next. Sure. Um, so speaking a bit more broadly, one of the things I, uh, I believe is um, the world has changed because of this pandemic. The 2019 reality, we're never going back to that uh, in so many ways. Uh, it's just so I am certain that the world will look very different because of this pandemic. I am far less certain how. Uh, but on key things like all these things that we implemented as a way to kind of get through the pandemic, many of those things will stick because people will decide, actually, I like it and I'm not going back. And the arguments for why we couldn't do telemedicine and just to stay with that example, uh, will fall by the wayside once people have tried it and realize it's just it's actually a pretty good way. But it, but there's also a lot of kind of, uh, you know, rosy uh, pie in the sky thinking that everything will become virtual. No, actually, one of the things that we have learned is the need for human contact is real. We are people who want to be able to do that. And so we'll be able to do a much better job of segmenting. When do you need human contact? And when is telemedicine or, or virtual stuff just fine? Uh, it will change how we work. It will change how we do science. Um, what happens coming out of this pandemic? When you look at the 1918 flu pandemic, for instance, it changed society in the 20s. But how it changes very much up to us. What are the lessons we use uh, to drive positive change? How do we stay more globally connected as a, as a world? How do we not turn nationalistic after this? Those are really things that we get to decide. If we make, I think, good choices, the world will come out of this stronger and better. Obviously, if we make bad choices, uh, we could be living with the consequences of this pandemic for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And Caitlin, final word to you. Those are tough acts to follow, but I think for me, two big takeaways are, I, I mentioned already the need to more explicitly account for structural in, inequalities and injustices in our pandemic preparedness. I think that's a big lesson. And I think the other big lesson for me um, as someone who, think, who researches and thinks about pandemic preparedness is a, a renewed emphasis on non-pharmaceutical interventions. We are months and months into this pandemic and we don't have a vaccine and that's exactly what we would have expected. There's no reason to think that we would have a vaccine but a lot of our preparedness attention and money goes to developing medical countermeasures. And the fact is those are not generally what we have available. It's the non-pharmaceutical interventions. And so I take, I hope that we 
uh, more explicitly account for and try to better understand the role of non-pharmaceutical interventions and how they can be used to the greatest effect. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, unfortunately, we, we are out of time, so we'll need to end our discussion there. So many thanks to our fantastic panel for taking the time to join us and share their knowledge and expertise. Uh, it's really, it's been incredible uh, talking to all of you and a great pleasure. Um, a reminder that we are planning more webinars in this series later in the year, so please look out for these at webinar.sciencemag.org. Uh, and if you'd like to sign up to receive alerts about upcoming events, you can use the link in the resources tab to the right of the video window. Uh, if you'd like to send us your thoughts on this webinar, please email webinar at AAAS.org. Uh, once again, thank you so much to the panel uh, and to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye.